Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I read that in the Bible, and I want you to, uh, to see it as well. It's in John chapter 10. If you have Bibles, feel free to turn there. John 10, verse 30. It, it, there the Lord said, I and the Father are one. It's a, a handful of words, but it's quite powerful if you think about it. It reveals deep theological doctrinal truth. We're going to go a little deep tonight. I hope you don't mind. Uh, it's, it's doctrine, and it's important to know that uh, we're believing the right things. So this is one of the key statements, I think, in the Bible. I and the Father are one. Now, uh, since uh, the I is God the Son, and the Father, of course, is God the Father, uh, they are male. The Father and the Son are males, uh, depicted that way. You would expect that the gender of the word one would be masculine. I and the Father are one. You would think that that word one would be in, in the masculine. But interestingly, it's not. It's neuter. And I don't think it's by accident. The Lord Jesus, who spoke these words, uh, is sovereign, omniscient, knows all things, orchestrated all things. And so it perplexes me a little bit. Why did he choose the neuter form of the word one instead of the masculine form here? And then it occurred to me, he did this on purpose. I'll tell you why. If he chose the masculine form of the word one, it would read this way. His statement would, in effect, be saying, I and the Father are one man. See, that's what he would be saying. Is that true, though? It's not true. I and the Father are one man, are one person. Oh, no, 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 no. They're distinctively different persons. The Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Father. See, I told you we're getting into a little bit of doctrine tonight. And that's why the word one occurs in its neuter form, not its masculine form. The Lord is making a statement. We are two distinct persons. We're not one man. There is the Father, and there is me, the Son. And so he wants to make sure we don't make the mistake of thinking there is no distinction between the Father and the Son. I'm belaboring this point because, as you'll see in a little while, most cult groups get this wrong. In fact, this is one of the distinctives of cults and aberrant religious groups. They're wrong about the person of Jesus Christ, and they're surely wrong about, about the Trinity. And so here the Lord is making a case for the distinction between Father and Son. I and the Father are one. No, no, we're not one person. We're not one man. We're one in a different sense, which leads to this. In what sense, then, is the Son and the Father one? In what sense are they one? In order to answer that question, I need to uh, impose upon you to back up a little bit and let's review what we read a couple weeks ago in verses 28 and 29, the verses which precede this one. Uh, the Lord speaks there and says, I give them, I give life to them, and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. He's speaking about his sheep, those whom he saved. What's more, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
we made a big point of the security of the believer there. You know, we're enveloped in the Lord's strong grip, and his strong grip is surrounded by the Father's strong grip. We're safe and sound, in other words. That was the point we made uh, the last time we got together. Anyway, the Lord is making this statement. So then, in answer to the question, in what sense is the Son, are the Son and the Father one, the answer is in purpose. They have the same purpose, and their purpose is to save folks who will believe and to keep them safe and secure in their salvation throughout eternity. I'm praying that I don't start coughing because I haven't been able to stop when I start going. In fact, I brought a a cough drop over here. I hope you don't mind if... uh, if I eat in front of you, I may have to make recourse to this. Reminds me of a story of this old preacher. He used to always preach for 20 minutes. I mean, to the second, 20 minutes. His people were amazed, uh, and they didn't know how he could time it so well. And he had a trick. He would keep a little uh, hard candy in his pocket. And before he got up to preach, he would just put it in his mouth. And he timed it. And when that melted and it was done, he was done. It lasted about 20 minutes. But on one occasion, the people were quite perplexed. It was like 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15 minutes. This guy's still going. What happened? And the preacher realized he reached into his pocket. It was a different set of pants. And he didn't get a cough drop. He reached in there and, and extracted a loose button. So he was, anyway, this is a cough, cough drop, <clears throat> not a button. So we'll get out of here on time. The Father and the Son are one in terms of their purpose. They have purposed to redeem those who by faith will accept the gospel message. And they have purposed to protect them and preserve them in a state of salvation throughout eternity. So then, am I saying that the only way in which the Father and the Son are one is with regard to their purpose? That is to save and keep secure those whom they've saved. No, I'm not saying that that's the only meaning, the only sense in which this statement is to be taken. They are not only one in purpose, they're also one in essence. And that is strongly implied in the Lord's statement here. I'll tell you what I mean. Who but God has the authority, the will, and the power to save anybody? Who but God? is strong enough to protect and keep secure those whom he has saved. So, based on verses 28 and 29, we see the activity of Father and Son in redemption to be exactly equivalent, which strongly implies they are equal in person, in essence, in divinity. So the Father and Son are not just one in terms of their redemptive purpose, they're also one in terms of their essence. So, They're two separate persons. They're not one man. They're two separate persons, but they're one in that they possess all the attributes of divinity. So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Father is God and the Son, Jesus, is God. But the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. Got it? Nobody got it. It's tough. And we didn't even talk about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three separate entities, 
equal in divinity and yet with distinctions in their personhood. They're not one, they're three with one essential nature and purpose. Now, I got to tell you something. I don't understand that. But I have no trouble accepting that. Why should I understand the lofty things of an incomprehensible almighty God? How dare the finite creature think he can fully comprehend the infinite creator? In fact, if you think <coughs> for a moment, I reject the Trinity because I don't understand it, you just told us more about you than about the Trinity. You told us you are limited. You can't understand the lofty doctrinal truths put into place by an incomprehensible almighty God who has chosen to manifest himself in three separate persons. So I have a lot of difficulty fully understanding the three-in-one Trinitarian notion which I see in the Bible, but I have no trouble accepting it. Folks, I don't understand how the carburetor in my car works. So, 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 so why is it so surprising that this kind of truth, the Trinity, is so incomprehensible for us? By the way, why would we do what we've done tonight? We've gathered together to sing, to praise, to watch uh, beautiful young people baptized, to hear from David about the uh, passion the Hellfighters have in sharing the gospel, not just this weekend, but also, why would we, we be doing any of these things if the God we worship isn't greater than us? If he was our equal and we could fully comprehend him, then he wouldn't be one we would attribute worth to. We wouldn't worship him. He would be our equal instead of our superior. One of the ways in which God shows me he's superior to me is with concepts like this. It's the mystery of the Trinity, incomprehensible but easy to accept. Nonetheless, so this brief statement made by the Lord, I and the Father are one, in that brief statement, he offers, in my opinion, a refutation of a lot of false teaching. For instance, there was an ancient heresy called Sabellianism. Sabellianism. It's named after a guy. That's his name, Sabellianism. Its modern counterpart, you may have heard of this, is something called the Jesus-only doctrine. Jesus-only doctrine. And those are groups, faith groups, who claim there is no trinity, but that Jesus is, at the same time, the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called Jesus-only. There is no trinity. There's just Jesus who encompasses both the Father and the Holy Spirit. But in the Lord's brief statement, he annihilates that, in my opinion, false teaching because he says, I and the Father are one in essential nature. So again, he used the word, the, the neuter form of the word one. We're not one person. We're two separate persons, but we share exactly the same nature as God. Uh, another false teaching the Lord annihilates in a brevity of words, saying, I and the Father are one, it was an ancient heresy called Arianism, because the guy who started it was a guy named Arius. Arianism. And its modern-day counterpart, here I'll be on the verge of offending folks, but... Um, if what I'm saying is true, 
and you're offended by it, then you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the truth. So here's the truth. The modern-day counterparts of ancient Arianism are Jehovah's Witnesses or the Watchtower Society. You see, Arianism uh, said that this Jesus is not fully divine. He is a God of sorts, but he's a lesser God than God the Father, Jehovah. Jehovah God is God. Jesus is an emanation away from God. And so he's not exactly God. He and the Father are not one in essential nature. That is the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So when you have the privilege of a conversation uh, with a member of the Watchtower Society, the Jesus they're speaking uh, to you about is different than the Jesus I hope you believe in. Uh, this doctrine about the person of Christ separates what we believe from what Jesus-only people believe, from what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and in a few minutes I'll tell you from what all kinds of groups believe about who Christ is. And so a proper understanding of Jesus' brief statement here is uh, that the Father and the Son are not one in the sense of being the same person. They are one in terms of their redemptive purposes and in terms of their essential nature. Now, some may say uh, that the Lord Jesus, in saying what he did, I and the Father are one, never meant to insinuate uh, that he was God. Well, uh, that's not how the first century original recipients, hearers of that statement, took it. They heard him claim deity loud and clear. <coughs> they concluded that this Jesus of Nazareth had the audacity in saying what he did to claim to be God. I can prove it to you. We'll simply take a look at how they responded to his statement. It's in verse 31. The Jews, here we go again. The Jews, got it, it's true, that's what it says, picked up stones again to stone him. In other words, this wasn't the first time they resorted to this. They had attempted to stone him earlier on for the same reason. He identified himself not only as being with God, but as being God. And so we read some time ago in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, <coughs> before Abraham was born, I am. Now, uh, he's claiming a characteristic called pre-existence. Pre-existence belongs only to God who has no beginning nor any end. They knew in he saying what he said, claiming pre-existence and identifying himself with the great I am statement of the Bible, uh, they knew he was claiming divinity. And so those who say uh, the Bible never shows us where Jesus claimed to be God, well, those people are reading a different Bible than I am. That's exactly what he's doing here. And I know he is by seeing how the original recipients of what he had to say, I see how they, how they responded. And this is what they did in John 8, 59. They therefore picked up stones to throw at him. You darn tootin' he was claiming to be God. They wanted to stone him for it. And so now in John 10, 
the text we're reading, Jesus made exactly the same claim to be God, and they respond again in exactly the same way. So Jesus answers, verse 32. He said, I showed you many works from the Father. Good works. For which of them are you stoning me? Now, he's not just claiming to have, commit, to have done good works. I suppose others could lay claim to that as well. Don't miss this. He's claiming that the character of the good works he performed are sourced in his relationship with the Father. I did many good works from the Father. Which of these are you stoning me for? In saying what he said, he is again establishing an equivalence between himself and God the Father. And just to show you I'm right about this, again, let's look at their reaction. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So for those who claim Jesus never claimed to be God, they don't know what they're talking about. They are doctrinally unsound. Can you see how important doctrine is? I must tell you, if you're going to take up membership at Sagemont Church, you've got to get this right. Jesus is God, enfleshed. He is the God-man. Explain that. I can't, but I could accept it. Jesus is one in his essential nature with the Father and with the Spirit. Explain that. I can't, but I can accept it. Why is it so hard to accept things? Who do you think you are? I'm not God's judge. He judges me. I don't sit as a critic over the Bible. The Bible criticizes me. We have to assume the right posture, it seems to me. I don't put myself over the word of God. I put myself under it, and I accept what it has to say, though admittedly, I don't understand all things fully this side of heaven. And so uh, they accuse him of blasphemy, and then the Lord gives a response which is going to require some explanation. Here's what he says, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? In this sense, the word law is used with reference to their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. Can you see why that is going to require some explanation here? So the Lord is referring, remember, these are religious Jews. They're the rabbis of the day. And so they claimed to be doing what they're doing based on Scripture. And so he takes them right back to their Scripture. And he extracts from it a verse which says, just what we read here, I said, you are gods. Now, where does that come from? Well, it's from Psalm 82. And I want to direct your attention to it now because I'd like to read through it. It's not too many verses. Psalm 82. We've got to get this right. Otherwise, you're going to embrace false doctrine. So Psalm 82 is where this comes from. Here's how it begins, first verse of the psalm. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. And so what this is saying is that though God is the ultimate judge, he has appointed human rulers or judges or governors to act on his behalf in governing his people. These uh, rulers or governors, these judges, 
in effect, stand in the place of God because they rendered judgments with regard to the people that could affect the people's lives. They could live or die based upon the judgments rendered by these human God-appointed judges. And though they are for sure not God, it is God who has delegated his authority to them to act on his behalf. But the judge in this psalm is judging the judges because the judges have judged unjustly. Take a look, verse 2 of Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality (coughs) to the wicked? Selah, that means pause, that means take a breath. How long will you do this? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And now... We come upon the verse quoted by the Lord in John 10, verse 34. Here it is. It's verse 6 of Psalm 82. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. What in the world are we reading in the Bible? Is this saying that these God-appointed judges are in fact God in the same sense in which the judge of all the earth, almighty God, is God? The answer is absolutely not. That's not what is in view here at all. They are referred to as gods, small g, in light of the fact that they've been appointed by God to act on his behalf and have authority to render judgments over God's people, which could have direct effect on their lives, and even, even whether they live or die. So in this sense, they're referred to as gods. They're not literally divine, and that's made very clear in the very next verse, verse 7 of Psalm 82. Nevertheless, you will die like men, not gods. God doesn't die. Men die. You will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Can you see the distinction between God, creator, sovereign, ultimate judge, and these human judges who, by his sovereign choice and authorization, stand in his place in adjudicating cases, rendering judgments on behalf of people that could have direct impact on whether they live or die. Now, a number of New Age groups and uh, pseudo Christian teachers, based upon this verse in Psalm 82 and the Lord's reference to it in John 10, a number of false teachers on this basis embrace what they believe to be the truth, and that is that we are gods. You and I are gods. Now, here I'll discipline myself and not mention names in particular, but there's a whole host of them on so-called Christian TV. This is literally what they claim. That is to say, we are gods, not the God. We're little gods, however. And that's how they base um, crazy practices like name it and claim it. 
You can speak into existence whatever you want, whatever outcome you want, because you have the same creative power in your words that God does. Because based on Psalm 82 here, verse 6, quoted by the Lord in John 10, you are God's. God is the creator. He said, let there be light, and there was light. You can speak things into existence. You see, a misinterpretation of this verse is what's behind that positive confession kind of a thing, where the creature thinks he has the same creative power that only the creator possesses, you see. So this is an important, important text to get right. What they're saying, we are gods, is simply not true. Remember, this statement in its context is made with reference to God-appointed human judges who stand temporarily in the place of God in rendering judgments on behalf of the people allotted to their charge. But this is not used with reference to people in general at all. This is not a statement on human nature, all humans are gods. This is a statement with reference to earthly judges, governors, rulers, whom God has appointed to govern for a spell under his umbrella of authority, and who, if they don't do it right, will be judged by the ultimate judge. They're not his equals, they are his subordinates. There's a difference between the one who is divine and the rest of us who are human. No, we are not gods. Good night. We're not even so hot as people. Let's not try being gods for crying out loud. So that is wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, this is doctrine. A lot of people don't like doctrine. But you've got to get doctrine right or you're going to get yourself into one of those nutso groups. They have a Christian veneer to it. But how could it be Christian at all when it denies the full deity, exclusive deity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? When you get in the mix and you think you're one of the gods, are you out of your mind? Are you talking about? Well, we spend five minutes with you and we could find out that you're a sinner, hopefully saved by grace. You're not, in any, you're not even close to being God. Neither am I for crying out loud. God doesn't cough. <clears throat> but here's the point. What is the point? Why did the Lord in John 10, 34, invoke this unusual phrase from Psalm 82, verse 6? Well, here's the point. Verse 35, back in John 10 now, verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. So if, the Lord is saying if, in the Hebrew scriptures, namely Psalm 82, if there God referred to these mere mortal, limited, sinful human judges, If there, God referred to them as gods, and they are only human who receive the word of God, if that, then how, verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. It's quite an argument. Look, The word of God came to these human judges, yet they're referred to as gods in the sense in which I explained it. But the Son of God is the word. He didn't receive it. And he came having been sent from on high. That's his abode. The judges are not there. The judges are earthbound, made of dust. 
They received the word. Jesus is the living word. Jesus came from heaven. If, if God refers in an unusual sense to these judges as gods with a small g, the Lord is saying, <coughs> why do you accuse me of blasphemy for claiming to be God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, it, it, it took some explaining <coughs> for us here because we're not rabbis. This is uh, something, this argumentation, very familiar <coughs> to the rabbis whom the Lord is engaged in conversation with. They understood this argument. Hey, thank you, brother. Ben, you're, you're a good guy. You'll do anything to get up and stay awake. And Thank you. Thank you, folks. I'll bring this home later. Thank you, Benson. <coughs> I appreciate it. I'm really fine. I just like the attention. Can you see it's an argument? If, look, here's what the Lord is saying. If them, how much more me? That's the argument. If they are referred to in an unusual sense as gods, but you don't stone them, you don't accuse them of blasphemy, if them, then why me? Why are you accusing me of blasphemy when, in fact, I didn't have to receive the word of God. I brought it, <laughs> and I brought it from heaven, sent out as an emissary of God the Father. So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Now, look, folks, we've been spending a lot of time tonight, again, on, on what's called doctrine or teaching, specifically the doctrine of the Bible that teaches that Jesus, the Son of God, is God. And this doctrine, of course, can be found throughout the New Testament, not just in this particular passage that we're looking at tonight. For instance, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, this is an interesting thing here. Bear with me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, a statement is made by God the Father, not God the Son, by God the Father. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is not Jesus talking. This is God the Father, God the Almighty. He refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And you might know that that's the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. What's the point of saying this? Well, there's nothing before Alpha, and there's nothing after Omega. In an interesting way, it's a way of saying this is true of God. He's the beginning, the source of all things. He's the end. Nobody outlasts him. He alone is when nothing else was. He always has been. He always will be. He's the Alpha and the Omega. That's what it says. Nothing will outlast him. That's what it means to be God. You have no beginning nor end. That's only true of God. Now, I'd like you to notice this. In the same book, last book of the Bible, Revelation, in this case, at the end of the book, Revelation 22. We read Revelation 1. Here's Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. When I ask you a question, who do you think is speaking there? You're God the Son. You're right. He said, I'm coming quickly to render to every man according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
I know this is Jesus speaking, because if you read the context, particularly verse 16 of Revelation 22, you find out unequivocally it's the Lord Jesus speaking here. First, God the Father claimed to be Alpha and Omega. Now God the Son is claiming the same thing. Now, for those who say Jesus never laid claim to being God, they don't know what they're talking about. Would you have the audacity to say, I am the Alpha and Omega? You're the beginning and the end? No, you're not. You have a beginning. Hopefully, you have a glorious end if you've embraced the one who is the resurrection and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So can you see the Son is laying claim to the same divine prerogative as the Father, Alpha and Omega? Folks, it's essential that you and I be right about this. In fact, many are not. They're wrong about the fact that Jesus is fully God. For instance, Mormons. Now, folks, I got an array of things to tell you. I just want to show you I am an equal opportunity offender. I will offend everybody. Mormons say Jesus was God's firstborn. He was a good man. He accomplished great things, but he is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses say he is a God, but not fully God. In fact, he's a created being. The Unification Church says he is a man, just like you and I. He's no better, no worse. The Way International says God always was, but the existence of Jesus began at conception. Therefore, he's not... He's not God. Muslim people uh, say that Jesus is a prophet and a messenger of God, but he is not God. The Unitarian Church says that he is a great teacher of morality. New Age thinkers say Jesus is a uh, kind of a mystic medium. He's a guide to self-actualization. And uh, Carl Jung, uh, psychoanalytic pioneer, and his followers, Jungian psychology, Carl Jung, he said Jesus is a, a psychological projection of our needs. See, we all need someone to lean on, and therefore we've created the mythical character of Jesus to lean on. That's what they all say about Jesus. But in the text we just read, Jesus said, I am the Son of God. Now, folks, what he claimed uh, is entirely different than what all these groups are teaching. Thomas, you know, not the guy who's the strongest in his faith. Doubting Thomas believed Jesus was God. In John 20, verse 28, he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Paul, much more mature in his faith than Thomas, Paul believed Jesus was God. In fact, he said in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that he was looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And God the Father believes Jesus is God and is to be worshipped as such. <clears throat> so we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says... And let all the angels of God worship him. The Father is inviting angels to worship the Son. Now, why would the Father invite angels to give worship to one who's not God? Jesus, folks, uh, Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus did the works of God and 
What's more, Jesus possesses the unique and distinct attributes of God. For instance, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him. Now you tell me, of whom can that be said but God? All things have been created by him, and what's more, for him. And he is before all things, preexistence, and in him all things hold together. Folks, if that isn't a description, uh, a collection of the attributes of the one who is uniquely God, I don't know what is. And that's a reference to Jesus Christ. Now, folks, you've got to get this right. Me too. We cannot afford to get this piece of doctrine wrong uh, if Jesus is who he clearly claims to be. And you deny it, you will be condemned forever as an unbeliever. Your eternity hangs in the balance. If Jesus claims to be God and you reject it, you will be condemned forever as an unbeliever. This is an important doctrine you see to get right. We have to get this right. I'll tell you why. We have sins. I don't know if you knew that. They're all over us and in us, and it's our sin nature uh, manifest in thought, word, and deed. The best of us is a sinner. That means we're in trouble. Because we really desperately need a pardon for our sin. And I want to know who but God has the will and the power and the authority to grant that pardon. Jesus said he'll do it. If Jesus is not God, that offer is in vain. So too is our faith. But if Jesus is God, he is, then he is uniquely qualified to make the offer of the total remission of our sins based upon his shed blood on the cross in our place. Nobody could qualify but Jesus. Nobody could make that statement. It has to be the God-man. It has to be the perfect sinless one willing to die for imperfect, sinful ones like you and I. Many die, but not for to ransom you or me. Who could pay the redemption price? For one such as you and I, it has to be the blood of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. People die for all kinds of reasons, but my blood doesn't have salvation power, neither do yours. Does you, only the blood of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, I've got a sin problem. I desperately need a Savior, and there are pretenders to the throne for sure. But only Jesus fulfills the prerequisites of being the redeemer, the qualified savior. Because on the divine side, he has the essential nature of deity. And on the human side, he came to embrace us and identify with us in all respects, yet without sin. He's the perfect one. Again, the sinless one offering up his life for the sinful one. And if all he did was to die on the cross, that's not good enough for crying out loud. 
There's much more to it than that. Up from the grave he arose. And if Jesus is not God, that's a myth and a fable. He did not die. The tomb is not, he did not rise up from death. The tomb is not empty. It's not just the crucifixion. It's the resurrection which you and I need. Because resurrection gives us hope of following suit. Jesus being the first fruits of life from death. He beat up on the last enemy which hurts and victimizes all of us. But the Bible says, oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been removed. Well, I didn't remove it. Neither did you. No pretender of the throne has the authority to do so, but Jesus did. And there is an empty tomb up from the grave. He arose. Now, if you are not right about Jesus, then you're stuck in your sin. I want to know what solution you proposed for your sin problem. Now, I don't have to convince you of your sin, do I? Look in the mirror for crying out loud. We sin not just in terms of overt behaviors which are unacceptable to God. We sin in thought, word, and deed. I've been a Christian for a long time, and my unbridled tongue still rears its ugly head. I still do the things that are contrary to God's will. I yearn for the day when not only the power of sin, but the very presence of sin is eradicated from my very members. I got a sin problem. I need a savior. You better choose the right one. And it has to be the one who meets the prerequisites. Jesus is the only one. Who but God has the will and ability to solve our sin problem. Can you see how important it is to get this right? Because Jesus is God. He can pardon sins. Because Jesus is God. He can raise believers up from death so that death doesn't have the last word. And because Jesus is God, he can reward believers with eternal bliss. And because Jesus of God is God, he can and he will judge the world. You've got to get it right about who Jesus is. Every cult and knucklehead teacher on TV is wrong about the person of Christ Jesus. You've got to get it right. Listen to me. If you're not right about the essence of his first coming, the God-man who came to suffer and die in our place, if you're not right about his first coming, you will shake for good reason in your boots with regard to his second coming. If you don't recognize him, though God, to be the sacrificial lamb who suffered and died in our place, that's what he did the first coming. If you don't see this humble one who entered Jerusalem on a donkey to be almighty God who laid aside his divine privileges, reduced himself so as to suffer and die in our place. If you don't see the essence of his first coming, you're not ready for a second coming. Because at the second coming, you can kiss that donkey goodbye. He comes the second time, not as a lamb, but as the lion of Judah. A roaring lion. The first time he came to judge sin. You've got to get this right. Because the second time, he'll come to judge sinners. I don't want to be a sinner stuck in my unpardoned sin. Do you? I'm ready for a second coming. But for the fact that there are still people to be saved up in Chapel Hill on Sunday and Dickinson on, uh, did you say Monday, David? Monday night. 
but for the fact that there are still people who need to hear the gospel and be saved, I'd be thrilled if the Lord Jesus came tonight. Uh, because by grace, I've been enabled to recognize the essence of his first coming. Here is God who assumed flesh so as to die in my place. Because by God's grace, I've been enabled to see my sin problem and Jesus as the solution for it. I'm not only not fearing his second coming, I must be frank uh, with you, that's my only hope. Uh, the world is in decline. Did you know that? I mean, good night. We could be at war with Syria later today for all. I, I mean, you can't put your finger on any part of the globe where it isn't in disarray for crying out loud. It's a world refusing to recognize that Jesus is God, worthy of worship. We should fall at his feet. We, accept his inex- we should accept his inexpressible gift. Forgiveness, pardon. He's willing to cast all our sins behind his back. I love what it says in Romans. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. I got a sin problem, but I got a Savior whose grace is greater than all my sin. Who's saving you? An athlete, a movie star, a politician, a pastor. I got a big problem. I really need a big savior. No, I don't need a big savior. I need a divine savior. I need a savior who has the authority of almighty God to say your sins are forgiven. You're pardoned. Now go and sin no more. That's Jesus Christ. This is not just idle intellectual doctrine to puff us up with facts of intellectual stimulation. I'm lost in my sin. So are you. I've got to get out of it. I need to be set free from its penalty, its presence, its power. I can't do a doggone thing. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. Paul said that. And then he cries out, who shall set me free? Who? A president? A pastor? A psychiatrist? Who shall set me free? Paul answers his own question. But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, my Lord. I wish I had stronger words than these to say, don't leave here. Without saying, Lord Jesus, you are God in flesh. You came to suffer and die for my sin. Solve my problem. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Give me the hope of eternal life, which only you have the authority to bequeath. Cast all my sins behind your back. Cleanse me with your shed blood. Change me from the inside out. Give me the hope of eternal life. Don't leave here without Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Everything should begin and end with that. With your wonderful invitation. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Now who could say that? Really. Mean it. Be able to do it. But God. 
You are God, Lord Jesus. We are your worshipers, so pleased and blessed to be such. Would you rescue more even tonight here? <clears throat> Would you search the hearts and minds of people here? Did some drag themselves into this place tonight for whatever reason? I don't know. But they're here for a reason. Maybe the reason is to accept you as a personal Savior who suffered and died for their personal sin so that they may be personally pardoned and personally on their way to heaven. Oh, God, in the power of your spirit, I pray you would do that work in people's lives so that not a one would leave here tonight without coming to grips with you as Savior and Lord. And this we pray in nobody else's name. This we pray in the mighty name of our Lord, our Savior, our God, you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.